But I think the average American just doesn't understand this issue. Well, I think they got a taste of it during the, the COVID emergency, but that was mostly state level stuff. And we did some work there as well. We, we found out how the government in Kansas was shutting down businesses despite uh, basically based on who had the most political clout. So if you didn't have that, they shut you down, even if you could operate uh, safely by having one. So we had examples of folks that could, that could send one person to the office to do shipping orders and they were not allowed to operate. But things like golf courses and uh, uh, gold sellers, I mean, which are, you know, nothing to say about their businesses, but why should they be able to open when others can't? And there was no really rhyme or reason to why they were doing that. So I think folks under, understand that very well because they see that in their daily lives. But at the federal government level, it's so esoteric sometimes, especially with like the National Emergencies Act. It's hard to understand because there's another problem here is that there's not much transparency about what the federal government is doing with these. And that's the problem. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. Thanks for, uh, as always, joining us. The podcast has been growing leaps and bounds, and it's all because of you and sharing it with your friends, um, you know, putting it up on social media. We love it when you do that. Listen, when you hear that the president has declared a national emergency, in your mind, how long do you think it should stay in effect? Do you know where the president gets the authority to declare an emergency? Well, in 1976, Congress passed the National Emergency Act, which allows the president access to a number of uh, statutory powers to deal with an emergency. What do you think the oldest emergency declaration is? You may be surprised by the answer, and we'll ask our guest that question here in just a minute. Americans for Prosperity Foundation has started a new project to take on three different areas when it comes to these powers. They are the National Emergency Act, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, and the Defense Production Act. So why are these the three areas that Americans for Prosperity Foundation decided to focus on that need to be reformed? Well, today's guest is Director of Investigations at Americans for Prosperity. He's a former guest on this podcast. Um, he's, he's actually with the, the Director of Investigations at Americans for Prosperity Foundation, Kevin Schmidt, uh, to talk about this. Kevin, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Yeah, you bet. So I didn't know this the last time we, we talked, but while you were in college, you ran the college TV station, right? And, and your the radio girl, station, that's right. Oh, the radio station. And your girlfriend who is now your wife ran the college newspaper. Is that right? That's right. So, I mean, we sort of had a libertarian, uh, liberty-minded sort of cabal within student media <laughs> at a, a fairly major university. I think we had 30,000 students back then. Wow. And my wife and my now wife and I, we uh, were both each other's bosses at both those publications. And then we had a, a group of like-minded friends who also co uh, collaborated with us there as well. Wow. Well, that's awesome. So you decided like... You're just a media conglomerate, it sounded like, at the college, huh? Yeah, it's kind of funny how it, how it kind of started. I think in, in some campuses, conservatives or libertarians kind of feel like that they're powerless and they don't even bother to try to go out for these things. But <laughs> we just kind of went and did it. And, uh, you know, it, at the time, it didn't seem very novel. But after reading about what other folks face on campus where they have to go to get external funding and launch their own publications, 
it, it sort of dawned on me, this is sort of a unique thing that happened to us while we're at Kennesaw State University in, in Georgia. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. And um, uh, I guess that's, um, it, it was a match made in heaven, sounds like, or at least in college, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it all worked out. I mean, the only thing that didn't work out is that we did try to do some work in uh, the student government, and we we failed to even get more than two out of 15 seats there. So it's not all uh, sunshines and rainbows. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that's good. So let's talk about executive power, emergency powers, those sorts of things. It's kind of in the news now. I mean, uh, but obviously we've got the federal government, but you've also got states and, and governors. We've seen a lot of, we saw a lot of it during COVID where governors would, would say, Hey, it's a, it's a health emergency and we need to, we need to enact this. But but it is something that we've got to be very careful with in a in a republic like ours, right, where really power is dispersed away from the executive for a reason, because we don't want a king who can just declare an emergency and do this. So maybe let's start there. Let's talk about, um, you know, how this fits in a constitutional republic, the idea of of an emergency powers act. Well, these only exist because at the state and the federal level, the Congress or the state legislature had to actually pass laws giving the executive branch these powers in the first place, saying within a temporary emergency situation, we, the legislature, give you X powers to be able to deal with these. And usually they put in some restrictions. But the problem is that we're facing now is that these laws have been they were passed, you know, many cases back in the 1970s as back to as late as the 1950s. And they didn't really envision what they would be used for how they would be abused, and how they don't actually fit, as currently written, well within our constitutional form of government, because the executive branch at the state and federal level has really taken these powers for themselves and cut out the legislature and cut out the people out of this process. So it's always been interesting to me. I used to work in Congress, but uh, you know, the legislative branch always seems far more willing to give away their power to the executive then the executive is ever willing to give their power to the legislative. Is that, is that not the case? Seems that's the oh, case. hundred percent. I mean, it, whether it's war powers or emergency powers, this is something that they've always been willing to punt on because then they don't have to make any tough decisions. They don't have to justify it back to their constituents back home. It's something that they can blame the president for or laud them for, depending on whose party they're in, obviously, yeah. and then kind of go from there without having to take any personal responsibility. And that's sort of the problem here. Congress needs to step up. State legislators need to step up and fix these laws so that they're not abused in the future. So what's the oldest executive order uh, using the Emergency Powers Act? So under the National Emergencies Act, uh, one of them is still on the books is from the Iran hostage crisis. So late 70s. And there's other ones on there. I think there's 30 plus that are still on the books that have been around since the, when the law was passed in 76. Um, and the only one I'm aware of that's been overturned by a congressional vote where you need a supermajority, you've got to uh, sustain a veto was the, the COVID emergency, which the, uh, President Biden was going to get rid of the month after that vote anyway. And that's the only reason it passed. So these things stay on the books as long as basically the president wants for the most part. And there's very little opportunity for Congress unless they have the 60 votes in the Senate to get rid of these things. Well, and one of the problems with getting rid of them is presidents, again, are always almost unwilling to give away that power you need a you need a special kind of president who sees that as a threat to the constitution uh and and is willing to give it away otherwise it's not because you know to take it away the the president's going to have to sign a law that would do that is that right that's right i mean to to reform the national emergency act or any of these other statutes that we're talking about it requires an act of congress 
It requires a president that's willing to sign it into law. And then it requires congressional oversight to make sure the law is being implemented. So there's a lot of things that have to go right for these laws to be useful, effective, and accountable. And right now we're not seeing that. So we've seen governors uh, and presidents misuse this emergency power. And we're going to maybe you can give us some examples of that. It's it's a very dangerous power, as I said, to grant an executive in a constitutional republic. But but how do we limit this? We have to pass. I mean, it has to be done by the legislature and then signed by the president. That's right. And, and I mean, there's some reform bills out there at the federal level. Uh, Senator Mike Lee, who you've had on the show, has a, a bill called the Article One Act, which would basically sunset every national emergency within 30 days. So it requires an affirmative act of Congress to continue it after 30 days. So that's one reform measure. Um, and that's also sponsored by Chip Roy in the House. I forget if you've had him on or not. Um, we haven't. Yeah, but, no. So there's that's basically the easiest way to do it is to give Congress a voice in these uh, declarations to make sure that it's not just the president going his or her own way. And that's that's really the way to do it is 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 that's number one. And then on the other statutes, there's other things you can do. But for national emergencies, that's the biggest thing we could do right now. And there's bills in Congress to do that. So, you know, recently we've we've seen this come up. I talked about covid. I know the governor of New Mexico just just did something not long ago. Um, we see where executives, uh, whether it's a governor or a president, says there's a national emergency. I need this power. And, you know, can can constitutional rights be limited by a by a, an emergency declaration that just doesn't seem like that's consistent with our Constitution? Well, certainly not with the state level, because, you know, state government cannot take sure. away your constitutional rights at the federal level on the National Emergencies Act. It activates 140 something statutes and none of those specifically uh, deal with constitutional rights, although they might in practice. And to give you an example, one of the statutes uh, under the National Emergencies Act is deals with shutting down wire communications. So this was based back in 19 in the 1930s. The FCC has power over radio communications. So under the under the NEA. The FCC has the power to shut those out. And the problem is we don't know what the scope of that is. Is it just radio? Is it Internet? Is it cell phones? No one knows because it hasn't been used before, but it's still on the books. So tomorrow, if President Biden declared a national emergency and said we need to shut down wire communications, hypothetically, the FCC would have the ability to do that. And there's constitutional questions there. It's untested before the courts. But hypothetically, based on the laws right now in the federal government, they could do that. Yeah. Well, and and. If you had a president so inclined, they they would try they could try and do that, and then I guess it would have to be litigated in the courts. Yeah, and this is this is the same tact that the governor of New Mexico is taking: is that I'm taking this power, people are going to challenge it in the courts, so why why shouldn't I do it? Right, and that's just the the, the wrong approach to governing and the wrong approach sure. to dealing with a crisis. Which, uh, you know, the, the point of these laws is to deal with temporary emergency events, hurricanes national natural disasters terrorism uh even you know covid type pandemics things like that those are what they're meant for it's not meant for things like long standing problems immigration gun violence things that we've known about for a long time and student student debt for another man that's another big one sure. but we're just we're seeing executives increasingly more likely to deal with try to go around congress go around their state legislature to try to deal with these issues unilaterally and that's a problem yeah. How many statutory powers does the National Emergency Act allow a president to access? 
and uh, how could they be abused by a president? So the Brennan Center estimates somewhere between 130 and 140. So the, the most obvious example of an abuse is when, you know, President Biden during the COVID emergency, which originally was just for Medicaid eligibility, which at the time probably made sense in that first year when, you know, you need to pe get people covered so they get health care. But the problem is that he used it for what's uh, uh, the HEROES Act, which was meant for making sure service men and women during responding to 9-11 did not go into default on student debt. That's what it was for. President Biden said, you know, we have a national emergency under COVID. Therefore, I'm going to use this unrelated law, the HEROES Act, to forgive student loan debt for basically everyone that holds student debt up to a certain income limit. And that's just an incredible abuse of power. And that's why the Supreme Court saw through it and, and struck it down. Right. So how, how did the Emergency Powers Act not go far enough uh, to rein in the potential overreach of the president um, and whether it's President Biden or another president? And what can Congress do about it? So the number one thing is that it, it, it thought it was reforming the process before, which was dated back to the 1950s. But it, it gave the president power to do it. And it, it allowed Congress sort of a check on it. But because of the way the Senate works, essentially, that you need that six, you need those 60 votes to overcome a veto that it's, hasn't been used before the COVID emergency. So it's, it's sort of an insurmountable uh, push amount of pushback you need on the executive branch from the legislature to actually hold them accountable. And that's why the, the, the answer, as I said earlier, is Senator Lee and Chipperoy's bill, which is it sunsets. But not only does it sunset the any uh, forthcoming emergencies, it sunsets all existing ones. So all those ones that have been around for 30 or 40 years that are just sitting on the books and no one really knows what they're doing with them, but they're there. They're still claiming that power. Those sunset within 30 days or six months. And that's the answer is to make sure that, that, that they're, they have the power to address national emergencies, true national emergencies, but it's time limited and it's overseen by Congress. And that's the way it should be. Well, you know, one of the things that as, as you're talking, one of the things I'm thinking about is uh, it seems often these are used as a way to get around a Congress that doesn't doesn't maybe agree with the president on a particular issue and that ought to be a signal to a president that that maybe they're exceeding their authority i mean our our constitution was set up so that it it, it uh, you know broke power up between the executive the legislative and the judicial branches so if a president is is trying to use this emergency power authority to get around a, a congress that that probably ought to be a flag for them would you agree with that I agree. And I mean, this is the biggest thing that we're seeing now in the National Emergency Act is a push for the second straight summer, actually, for the president to declare a climate emergency. So there's lots of groups, yeah. environmental groups that have been writing to President Biden, urging him to declare that. And it would basically allow him to do three things. Uh, it would ban oil and gas development in the outer continental shelf. It would ban oil exports and it would uh, ban other drilling on federal lands, basically. And the thing here is that under their, you know, what would be good for them? It wouldn't do anything. It would not reduce emissions because we would just get oil and gas from somewhere else. But at the same time, it also abuse emergency power uh, incredibly, even though they believe in other instances that there's been abuses here. So they're willing to, uh, you know, sell out uh, uh, emergency powers for uh, a goal that doesn't really even meet what they want. And this is the second story summer they push for it. And I think I mean, the Biden administration is considering it that I think they almost did it last summer. And if he's elected again, I think it's something that we could certainly see in 2025. 
Yeah, and, and it's very dangerous. I mean, it truly is trying to get around the Congress of the United States because the Congress, you know, is not going to pass legislation that would do what some of the things that you just you just said in the area of energy. So it's it's really a way to get around them, and that's not what our founders intended when they wrote the Constitution and the separation of powers between the different branches. What's the talk? Talk about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's been something that's been abused, I think, by executives for for many years, but certainly by President Biden over the last couple. What's the history behind the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Right. So Congress and the president created this in the late 70s as a response to the Arab oil embargo, when at the time it was a true national emergency. There was long lines for gas. There were businesses that couldn't even get gas. There were shortages. There was a spike in unemployment. So it true emergency where they they had to make a response to it. And then in the ensuing about 50 years, it had been used a handful of times for what's called emergency sales, which is that something happened, usually hurricanes, sometimes uh, the first Gulf War, for example, where they did uh, a limited amount of sales, usually in conjunction with their allies to basically uh, stabilize the, the supply of oil and gas in the, in the global market. But what happened in um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Biden didn't use he used the first uh, release was 36 million barrels, which was in conjunction with our allies. OK, that's an arguably arguable use of it. But then he continued to use it for the rest of the year and he drained almost half of what was in the SPR. And he did it all the way up through a midterm election when it was clearer that he was doing it for political purposes. And that's an obvious abuse of what's supposed to be for just emergencies. Yeah. So so using what is this national asset really for political purposes that's right and i mean I, his release is 180 million barrels the largest before that was 36 so six times larger most of the other ones have been between 15 and 30 roughly and he did it over a course of a year and well looking into it i saw that during the obama administration when he was vice president we were faced with the same sort of gas prices the same sort of pressures that we were facing now and they considered it and chose not to do it back then when he was vice president. And the Secretary of Energy during that time, Ernest Moniz, has criticized the Biden administration saying, you know, they've depleted this resource that we might need later. And they've done it when we didn't really need to use it. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem is that it's supposed to be for things when, when it was created through the Arab oil embargo, which is that true emergencies that are harming the economy, that are, that are where the supply is so low that there's people that cannot get this, the gas that they need. Is it just the president who has the authority over what can be done with the strategic petroleum reserve? Yep. And that's the problem. So again, here is a a law created by Congress and the president that gives all the power to the president. There's no mechanism within the statute that created the SPR that says, Congress, you have a say in this. It gives the president the the ability to declare uh, supply disruption, and then they can basically do what they want. And that's what he did. Yeah. And, and he can do it for any length of time that he chooses. Yeah, there's no limits on the, the length of time. There's no limits on how much. I mean, he could have drained all of it, hypothetically. There's, no, there's nothing in the statute that says you can't drain all of it. Yeah. If he wanted to, he could have kept going through, through this year and he could have kept going in perpetuity. Uh, I saw the Biden administration, John Kirby, mentioned yesterday that they're, that they're still holding that out as an option. Is, is to continue to use the reserve. And this is after they just canceled oil and gas leases in Alaska, by the way. Yeah. So we have this sort of disconnect where they say that there's a supply chain disruption so great that they have to use a national resource. But then when it comes to developing resources at home, 
they're unwilling to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is a real, uh, real emergency, I think, for the American people uh, to, to understand this issue. And, to, and very few people do. I mean, this is not something people are talking about are these emergency powers and, and reforming. You are an Americans for Prosperity Foundation, but I think the average American just doesn't understand this issue. Well, I think they got a taste of it during the, the COVID emergency, but that was mostly state level stuff. Right. And we did some work there as well. We, we found out how the government in Kansas was shutting down businesses despite uh, basically based on who had the most political clout. So if you didn't have that, they shut you down, even if you could operate uh, safely by having one. So we had examples of folks that could, that could send one person to the office to do shipping orders and they were not allowed to operate. But things like golf courses and uh, uh, gold sellers, I mean, which are, you know, nothing to say about their businesses, but why should they be able to open when others can't? Mm -hmm. And there was no really rhyme or reason to why they were doing that. So I think folks under, understand that very well because they see that in their daily lives. But at the federal government level, it's so esoteric sometimes, especially with like the National Emergencies Act or the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, not even to mention the, the Defense Production Act, which is even farther sort of removed from folks. But uh, it's hard to understand because there's another problem here is that there's not much transparency about what the federal government is doing with these. Yeah. You, and that's the problem. You mentioned the Defense Production Act. Uh, let's talk about that. T talk about what that is and how it can be abused by by a president. Yeah. So in 1950, the, they passed the Defense Production Act specifically for what you would think it would be is for defense materials to protect our national industrial base. And what that is, is basically ammunition. Think about th uh, supplies for the military, uh, mortars, missiles, things like that. But over time, it's sort of morphed into a, you know, whatever serves the national interest. It's the, the definition of what is considered under the Defense Production Act has grown. And it's done that leg legislatively. It, they expanded the definition to include things like energy. But the president, uh, it, it's been used by a bunch. But under President Biden, it's been used as expansively for things like baby formula or uh, solar panels or heat pumps, things that, you know, tangentially have to do with energy or the national interest. But it's really a far cry from what the law was actually meant for. So, so what is it? What is the impact? So let's say they say that baby formula is something that, that has to, uh, the Defense Production Act, the president can order people to just start producing baby formula. So what the, under Title I of the DPA, so what happened with baby formula is so the president said, I'm under the DPA, I'm, de I'm declaring baby formula uh, needs to be put to the head of the line. What that means is that all the materials, all the inputs that go into baby formula, uh, if you have a contract with some uh, someone that provides that, you don't get that. It goes to the baby formula manufacturer. It upends whole supply chains at the whim of the executive branch. And that raises costs elsewhere throughout the economy. And at least in the, in the case of baby formula, it doesn't actually increase the, the supply because the, the supply chain bottleneck wasn't the actual supplies domestically. It was the fact that we didn't have factories producing baby formula because one was shut down. And the fact that we didn't allow imports uh, because of labeling, labeling requirements and tariffs that were you know self-inflicted, the Biden administration do, it didn't really do anything about those, but he did try to leverage the Defense Production Act to upend supply chains and waste taxpayer resources. Okay. So what, what can be done? I mean, what can Congress, what's a solution to reform the defense production act? And if you're sensing a theme here, the, the answer is there's no mechanism in the statute that allows Congress a voice in any of this. 
And it, uh, even worse than the other two is that as soon as the president declares under the DPA that, he, that he's do, taking an action, it's in the Federal Register. It seems like, OK, this is transparent. But then after that, it's a complete black hole. And I've looked around for this and we, we're going to be doing some FOIA work on that this year. But there's, you know, there's no way to find out what they're doing and who's benefiting and how much money is being spent on it. Because the reporting is sort of spread out through all these different agencies. And so what Congress should do if they were looking to reform this law is give Congress a voice. When, they, when the president takes an action on the DPA, they sh it should sunset after a certain period of time if Congress is not going to authorize it. And then sh they should require a lot more transparency. They should require agencies to post exactly what they're doing. They should require inspectors general throughout the government to investigate and provide oversight of all the things in effect right now. And, and I think they should consider, so the law is actually going to be reauthorized. It's scheduled to be reauthorized in 2025. So I would say if, the, if they're not going to fix the law or reform the law, they should consider letting it expire. Yeah. I mean, how about, how about cronyism here? I mean, uh, and I'm not suggesting that, that there, that there is or is not cronyism, but it, it certainly is an avenue that cronyism could be uh, exploited, right? If you had a president who had a, a major donor who manufactured a certain thing, couldn't couldn't they be lobbied to to you know use the Defense Production Act to benefit them? I mean, does that concern you? It does because uh, the first part I talked about what they did with Baby Flower was sort of reorganizing the supply chain and disrupting it. The other thing that they, they can do is use federal resources to do loan guarantees, to do grants to do uh, purchase orders, things like that, actual spending of taxpayer money towards uh, favored firms. That's what this is. It's directing resources toward favored firms. And you have to hope, ideally, in an ideal world, those would be firms that are deserving of it, that are actually going to serve our industrial base and help make sure we have the, the materials that we need for our national defense. Whether or not that's going to happen in practice is, is unlikely. There's a, there's a great chance for uh, cronyism, great chance for fraud in that because, again, there's no transparency. There's no oversight of this. Even Congress is, is barely, barely aware this is happening and not really tracking it. So the, it's just sort of a black hole. And anytime you have the sort of untraceable black hole of government money, uh, there's, there's a, a huge recipe for problems and something that we need to track more. Yeah, and I, I don't want to give anybody any ideas, and I'm certainly not suggesting like Solyndra was – was an example or that the defense production act was, was used there, but, but that's a great example, right? If, if all of a sudden you, you, someone decides, well, we really want more solar. So let's start, let's use the defense production act to increase the number of solar panels out there. I mean, that's an amazing amount of power that an executive, a president of the United States would have as control over a country. And that may be a very bad use of, of the economy to start producing more solar panels, for instance. I mean, th is that another concern is just the, the overreaching uh, impact that a president could have on an economy through something like this? Yeah. I mean, I think there is limit, a limited amount of money in terms of what's available under the DPA. So hypothetically, it's not going to be economy wide damage, you hope. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the example of Solyndra is interesting because Solyndra and things under, as we know, under the, uh, paycheck Protection Program, the fraud in those programs were, were pretty pretty large. And those are programs that we can track that they posted basically online. You can go find whoever, anyone that got a PPP loan, you can find that online. So if the fraud is that large in a program where everything is posted online, 
Imagine what the cronyism and fraud is in a program where nothing is available online for the people to look at. Yeah. And that's, you know, that stems from part of the problem here. And Congress needs to step up and figure out a way to reform or get rid of this program so that we're not at risk. So what are you, you talked about what Congress can do. Are they, I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, Senator Mike Lee has kind of been working on this issue. Are there pieces of legislation that are out there that, that Congress has proposed or uh, what, what, what's out there? On the DPA, there's been uh, legislation uh, on, on the margins, but nothing really reforming the whole program. On the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, one of the first uh, pieces of legislation the House Republicans moved when they took office was uh, basically a, a small reform of the SPR in terms of requiring it to uh, requiring the government to open up more federal lands to oil and gas development if the SPR is used. So that's something it, I think our reforms go farther. We we want more congressional say over the use of the DPA and the use of the SPR. So basically sunset provisions. So within 30 days of uh, declaration of using the SPR or the DPA, uh, Congress should have a say. They should they should say, if we want this to continue, we have to vote for it. And that's something that I mean, it, it goes to laws. It goes to laws that happens at the state level. We talked about New Mexico earlier. They need that they could use that law here as well. But instead, they're what they have to do is they just have to wait for a lawsuit, which I understand happened today. They're going to wait for the courts to rule on. Right. And that's the wrong way to do it. Congress needs to be engaged. State legislators need to be engaged actively and holding their executive branches accountable. If folks want to know more about some of the information that you've uncovered, where can they, where can they find that? Where can they learn more about this topic? Yeah, we have a uh, website up emergencypowersreform.com. It discusses all three of these statutes. It talks about the work that we're doing here. And also you can find, of course, our work at americansforprosperity.org. If you search for emergency powers or for my name, Kevin Schmidt, you can find more information. Awesome. Kevin, thanks for joining us and thanks for, for bringing this issue to us. I'll be honest with you. I learned a lot of, about some of the, some of the great work that you're doing and really the threat that's out there. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right. Well, listen, if, if, if you're as surprised as I was to hear some of the stuff that Kevin's talking about and how it has been misused by executives in the past and how it can be misused in the future, um, we need to we need to know more about this. We need to continue to push and try and get our our legislators to do uh, more in this area, whether it's at the state level, your your state legislator, or your member of Congress trying to push for reform. That's an incredible amount, as I said, an incredible amount of power for an executive to have in a constitutional republic, which separates power. And uh, this was all power willingly given by the legislative branch to the executive branch and we've just got to we've got to do a lot of reform there otherwise we're going to have some major problems down the road look liberty and freedom they're easily taken for granted do not take liberty and freedom for granted go out there defend freedom defend liberty and thanks for joining us Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.